Mark 8, 22. Then Jesus came to Bethsaida, and they brought a blind man to him and begged him to touch him. So he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the town. And when he had spit on his eyes and put his hands on him, he asked him if he saw anything. And he looked up and said, I see men like trees walking. <coughs> then he put his hands on him again and made him look up. And he was restored and saw everyone clearly. Then he sent him away to his house, saying, Neither go into the town, nor tell anyone in the town. Let's pray. Father, the word before us, the world behind us, these are words of life and words of hope that because of your Holy Spirit have the capacity fully to meet us where we're at and at first glance a passage that kind of looks a little confusing gives great applications Application, Father, that as only you can do, can touch somebody's heart as an individual here today and speak to them while at the same time speaking to an entire congregation. Let us never lose how in awe we are of how you speak to your children. It truly is amazing. Bless our study today. Christ name. Amen. Let's be honest. Jesus is confusing. Jesus is confusing. While we would agree as the church in looking at the Old Testament, that he's on every page, yet his name never mentioned. There are pictures of Jesus, as we're studying tonight in the life of Joseph. Joseph's life gives us a little bit of a picture of Jesus. There are promises of Jesus. There are prophecies of the Messiah that's coming. And yet, if you read some of the prophecies in comparison, it could be a little confusing. For example, Isaiah 52, verses 13 through 15. You don't have to turn there, but it reads like this. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man and his form marred by human likeness, beyond human likeness. So he will sprinkle in essence, help or heal many nations. That's from Isaiah, and that's a prophecy regarding Jesus. Yet in the same book, there's another prophecy in chapter 61 that reads like this. 
It says, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. And we can stop there because there you can see, well, it seems to be a prophecy about deliverance speaking about Jesus. And yet in the other passage in Isaiah 52, it said his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man. And his form marred beyond human likeness. So how do you take a look at that and you take a look at the other passage and you reconcile them? It can be a little confusing. But if you were confused there, don't let me stop you there. Because between the end of the Old Testament, Malachi, and the New Testament, the Gospels, there seem to be over 400 years of complete silence from God. No prophecies, no miracles, no mention of the Messiah. So that could be a little confusing. But after that, well, the Messiah comes, and he comes as a baby, and yet he's God. He's man and yet he's God. So that could be possibly a little confusing because Jesus can be confusing. Ask John the Baptist, who the first time that he saw him said, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. But then Jesus went up to him to get baptized, and he said, Well, what are you doing? You should be baptizing me. And John was confused. Later, as John gets arrested, he's in prison, and he's saying, Well, he sends a message to Jesus. Listen, are you the Messiah or are you not? Should we be looking for someone else? And now John is confused. After his baptism, Jesus is brought into the wilderness for 40 days. That's a little confusing. He's brought by the Holy Spirit to be tempted in the wilderness. So that could be a little bit confusing. Everything that we've seen in the Gospels that we've studied, let's face it, could be a little bit confusing. The moment that they lower the lame man, the four friends lower the lame man, and he doesn't say automatically, get up, you're healed. He says, your sins are forgiven. That could be confusing. Nicodemus comes to him at night in John 3 and says, okay, we're a little confused because we see that you're from God, and yet uh, we don't necessarily understand this. What about Pontius Pilate? He looks at Jesus and he says, what is truth? Jesus had thoroughly baffled him. Herod was confused because if you look at the life of Jesus and you look at the person of Jesus, sometimes things can be a little confusing. And that's why it's important that what you have in front of you is something that none of those men have. None of those men or women in the Old Testament or the New Testament have what you have in front of you. That is the Word of God from Genesis to Revelation. You have a complete revelation. It doesn't tell you everything there is to know about God. It tells you everything you need to know about God. But even as we read this, let me ask you, do you sometimes look out at the state of the world and say, you know what? I'm confused as to who's in charge. This is confusing. God, Jesus, Jesus what you're doing, whatever you're doing, it's confusing. Last year with the shooting of children at Parkland and years before that at Sandy Hook Elementary, we would look at that and say, God, you have the ability to stop it, but you did. That's confusing to me. And yet the repercussions still happening. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, students from Parkland, suicides back to back, almost a day or days apart. And then one of the fathers of the Sandy Hook kids, uh, now after all these years, 
took his own life. And we look and we say, God, what is happening? Why so much pain? I'm confused. What's going on? And maybe it's not just like that when you look at the world. Maybe it's that when you look like that when you look in the mirror and you look at the state of your own life and the things that God's doing. And you're in a season of uncertainty and you're saying, Jesus, what are you doing in my life? Because I don't get it. I thought things were going to be like this, but they're not like this. Have you been in that season? Or are you in that season? Because if you are, then today's passage. I think there's a confusing way that we see Jesus' work in today's passage. And I think it's going to be something that sheds a little light and begins to clarify some of the confusion that we have. So let's read through the whole passage again. All four verses. Some of you are looking and you're saying, wow, PJ's only going to cover four verses today, so we'll be out of here in time. No, you won't. <laughs> he said with a smile. Let's read the passage again, and let's see if there's anything that we should be confused about. Then he came to Bethsaida, and they brought a blind man to him and begged him to touch him. So he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the town. And when he had spit on his eyes and put his hands on him, he asked him if he saw anything. And he looked up and he said, I see men like trees walking. Then he put his hands on his eyes again and made him look up. And he was restored and saw everyone clearly. Then he sent him away to his house saying, Neither go into the town nor tell anyone that is in the town. First thing that we're going to notice is this as we look at verse 22. All right, they brought a blind man to him and begged him to touch him. We've made this point here before, and it's worth reiterating that it is a good thing when we bring our hurting friends to Jesus. It's not only a good thing, it's a necessary thing because it's the thing that they need most. And so that's what they do. They bring their friend to Jesus, and you have to love this because, you know, there, maybe there are times in your life when you're saying, well, you know what, I invited them to church, but they won't come. Or when they went to church, it was like they didn't really kind of get the whole thing and they didn't want to come back necessarily. But still, the most important thing that you can do for your fellow man, your neighbor, your enemy, is to get them to Jesus. And what happens is this, is that when they bring him to Jesus, it says that Jesus takes him by the hand. And he leads him out of the city. See, that's that's it. That's really what this has to be about. This thing called the church. It has to be about us getting them to Jesus and saying, okay, this is the one that you need. This is the one that's right here. All right? Now, as the church, we're called to be, as Oswald Chambers says, we're called to be poured out wine and broken bread. We're called to be that for our fellow men. All right? And so when somebody's first coming to Christ, what you're called to do is you're called to show them Jesus both by your actions and being able to give them his word and giving that to them. That's the most important thing that you could ever give is to hand them to Jesus. And when you do, he gently takes him and he leads him out of town because the man can't see on his own. So he's got to be led by Jesus ultimately. But you're saying, Pastor, I can't even get that far. I can't get my friend that far. I can't get them to Jesus. They won't accept it. They won't receive it. Yes, you can. Yes, you can. Here's how. If they won't come to church with you, if they won't get in the Word with you, if they won't receive what you have to say about Jesus, you can stay on your face for them. 
stay on your face and you can pray for them and you can bring them before Jesus in prayer. Matter of fact, if there's somebody that you're struggling with, there's nobody that you can't bring before Jesus in prayer. There's no one that you can't do that with. And that's what the friends do. They bring their blind friend to Jesus, and in bringing them to Jesus, they hand him off, and it says that Jesus took the blind man by the hand and led him out of town. Can you see this scene? All right, they take him, he takes him by the hand. Jesus Christ, the one who created that hand, is holding his hand and leading him out. Showing him the way. What do you think it would have been like to have been walking this planet as they had the opportunity to so many years ago with the one who created the entire planet? Wouldn't that have been cool? Wouldn't that have been amazing? And that, that's exactly what they do. But what we also see here is when it comes to the healing, he takes him outside of the town. When he spit on his eyes and put his hands on him, I'm sure the guy was kind of like, well... That's not kind of what I was hoping for. That's not kind of what I expected, um, that they took me to this great rabbi, this healer, and he kind of just, he spat in my face. All right, how many of you would like to boast that? I brought him to Jesus. You know, you won't see this on the healing channels. Whenever you turn on TBN or see something like that, here's what you won't see. You'll see men throwing their jackets to heal someone. You'll see them knocking someone over. But here's what you won't see. You won't see the healers on TV. Come on, get your healing. <laughs> What's wrong? You won't see that. And so we look, and it says that he spit on his eyes, put his hands on him. He asked him if he saw anything. And he looked up and he said, I see men like trees walking. Then he put his hands on his eyes and again made him look up. And now he was restored and saw everything Clearly, this raises a couple of crucial questions that we need to answer in looking at this passage. The first question is this. If Jesus is God and he's all-powerful, why does he take why, why does it take two takes for him to heal this guy? Why is that? Why does it I mean if, if he's God if he created the eye, if he created the eyes, if he created the nervous system, got the nervous system to work together with cardiac, to work together with the, the respiratory system, with the gastro system, if Jesus created all that, if he's God and all things were made through him that were made, why does it take two tries? That's one question. But the other question is this, is that after he initially spit on his eyes, put his hands on him, then he asked him if he saw anything. If he's God, doesn't he know? So the first question is raised. We're going to ask the question, isn't he all-powerful? If he's all-powerful, then why did it take him two tries? And if he's all-known, why does he have to ask him what happened? What's going on? Are you healed? We'll answer the second question first, or attempt to. The fact that Jesus asks him, remember this, Jesus is God. Does God ask his people questions in Scripture? Yes. Is it because he doesn't know the answer? No. Okay, so the first question that he asks in Scripture seems to be back in the book of Genesis, right? When he asks Adam, did you do the thing that you weren't supposed to do? Right? Did God know the answer? So why was he asking Adam? It was a moment of admission. It was a moment of confession. It was a moment for Adam to admit what he had done. All right, then with Cain. Hey, Cain, where's your brother Abel? 
Am I my brother's keeper? Now let me ask you, did God know where Abel was? Yes, he knew exactly where Abel was. Again, about admission, it was about confession. But God also asks these questions to test us. Remember when we saw the feeding of the multitudes? The feeding of the 15,000 or the 5,000, the feeding of the 4,000. All right? Do you remember in the feeding of the 15,000 or the feeding of the 5,000, he says, listen, all right, go feed them. Or, or, or how are we going to feed them? And this he said to test them. This he said to test them. So sometimes he asks us questions so that it can reveal what's in our hearts and what we believe. Now here, the question is asked so that we can see something, so that something can be revealed that the man could not fully see after the first interaction with Jesus. And so it reveals also something to us in the way that Jesus questions the man. But the second question is this. The second question, and perhaps more compelling, is why did it take him two times? Maybe you would ask, well, did Jesus mess up? And we would all say, no. Okay, so he didn't mess up. We're pretty clear on that. Um, was Jesus weakening for some reason? No. He was not weakening. It doesn't say he messed up. It doesn't say that he was weakening. Did the people not have enough faith? Well, the passage doesn't tell us that, so that's not the answer. Did the man not have enough faith? It doesn't blame this on the man's lack of faith. So why does it take him two times? What we're going to do is we're going to see some applications here that I think will help answer the question because everything he did was intentional. Everything. Through his ministry. So the fact that we find this right smack in the middle of Mark's gospel, and that's where it is. It's Matthew 8. This is right in the middle of his gospel. We're getting a few applications, and what we're going to do is we're going to call them four eye-opening truths. Four eye-opening truths that are going to bring, I hope, clarity to some of the confusion. So as Jesus spits on his eyes, puts his hands on him, asks him if he sees anything, he says, I see men like trees walking. We know this. Jesus can heal naturally. He can heal quite supernaturally. All right, There were believed to have been healing properties in spittle. So there was a reason that Jesus did this. But again, the healing is not immediate, right? It's progressive, and it's the only time in Scripture you see a healing done like this. This is the only moment in Scripture where you see somebody healed gradually, in stages. And it brings us to our first eye-opening application. God isn't limited by what we see. And let me tell you why that's the application. He's not limited. When we say, well, we've seen Jesus heal people before. Sometimes he asks them if they want healing. Sometimes they come to him requesting healing. Sometimes he touches them. Sometimes they touch him. Sometimes he speaks healing, and they're healed. There's no necessarily discernible pattern in Scripture as to how Jesus heals someone. Because if he did, here's what we would do. We would write a book, we would put it in a bottle, and we would make it something that was not relational, but that would always be about a methodology of doing something. That's why God is not limited. So we're fully dependent on the Holy Spirit. At one point, he asks a man, he says, do you want to be made well? And at another point, somebody approaches him and says, well, if you are willing, you can heal me. But what we don't see is the discernible pattern that the church tries to sell today. Because God cannot be limited. What he does 
and he rarely works the same way twice, what he does will not be limited, but listen, while it will not be limited, it will always, always be consistent with his word and his character. He will never deviate from his word and his character. But he's not limited, make no mistake, by the things that we see because we can't put him in a box. You can't see everything God sees. Right? You go out to the beach and you say, well, okay, on a clear day you can see forever. Okay, you look out at the water and you can see a lot. I mean, you can see a lot when you look out there. You look up at the sky and it seems endless. But you can only see so much. It doesn't mean that there isn't more. You look out at the ocean. All right, and you can only see a certain amount, but you know that there are things underwater that, that you're not going to be able to see unless you go into some sort of uh, some sort of machinery and put on some special equipment that you won't be able to see what's under there. But just because you don't see it doesn't mean it isn't there, and we can't be limited. When you look up at the sky at night, on a clear night, the further out west you go, the less light pollution we have, the more you can see the stars... The higher up you go in the mountains, and perhaps you've experienced this, but you still, no matter how clear it is, you can't see all the stars. Sometimes we can't see what God is doing, and because of that, we can't limit God. And I hope that that brings clarity to the confusion, because we look at this, and I don't understand all of it. Honestly. I don't understand why some people get the healing, why some people don't get the healing, why this one is done in stages, why he talks to this one, while this one talks to him. But God is not limited by the things that we see. Now, how many of you are familiar with the book of Job? Alright. Now we know, because it's written in the first couple of chapters, why Job gets tested. While the sky literally falls on him. He loses family members, his children that are precious to him. He's diseased, he loses livestock and servants. And in the first two chapters, what we understand is that the reason that it happened was because of something that you couldn't see. And that was that Satan had gone before the throne of God to ask to be able to test Job. Now, by chapter 3, Job and his friends, they're all sitting there, and you have verse chapter 3 through 37 about 34 chapters of painful discussion, painful discourse where they're trying to figure out what God is doing. It's one of the hardest books in the Bible to teach because you're spending so many chapters, over 30 chapters, trying to sort through bad counsel. What's good counsel? What's bad counsel? What's going on in Job's life? Nobody knows. Nobody can really see until Job 38. And you can turn there if you'd like. Job 38, finally, after all this bad counsel, God saying, okay, enough is enough is enough is enough. Now let me step in and answer your questions. After all this painful discussion, after all of this bad counsel, people trying to look and figure out and put God in a box, chapter 38, verse 1 says, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now prepare yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determines its measurements? I mean, surely you know. 
or who stretched the line upon it? To what were its foundations fastened? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst forth and issued from the womb? When I made the clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band? When I fixed my limit for it and set bars and doors? When I said, this far you may come but no further? And here your proud waves must stop. And we'll stop right there. See, God is not limited, my friends, by the things that we see. And you're not always going to understand that. Because he's not limited by the things that we see. We're not always going to understand it. I don't understand why some people get healed and why some people don't. And I'm glad for that, and here's why. Because if I was in charge, things would be very different. That's not good. Here's why. Because maybe there are some people that I would say, well, this person deserves to be healed. This person, not so much. Let them go. Maybe I would say, well, you know what? Uh, if they come to me, this person has led a good life. I would heal them. And this person is not. And then what would disappear? Our understanding of God's grace would disappear. And if it was about me, and I was deciding, and I had the power to heal people, here's what would happen again. God's, God's power would disappear, because I would sit up here and take all the credit. And people would try to give me all the credit. And that's why so much of the healing that we see, we have to be very careful and exercise discernment. Who is it really about? It's all about God. And the way that he heals, he's not limited by the things that we see. We see him do it all sorts of different ways in Scripture so that ultimately we understand this very important fact, that it is based upon his power and his spirit and his alone. He can use the prayers of the saints. He can use the anointing of oil of the elders of the church. As Scripture says, he can use prayers for healing, and he does use it. But he's not limited. That's the first point. He's not limited by the things that we see. Don't limit God. One commentator, when it comes to this passage, says this. His name is Adam Clark. He said it is likely that this was done the way that Jesus healed him. He spit on him, touched him with his eyes, and then he could kind of see a little bit. It's likely that this was done merely to separate the eyelids when Jesus spit on him. Let me explain. Um, as in certain cases of blindness... They are usually found gummed together, the eyelids. It required a miracle to restore the sight, and this was done in the consequence of Christ having laid his hands on the blind man. It required no miracle to separate the eyelids, and their natural means were only employed. This was done by rubbing them with spittle. And so this is what is suggested by this commentator. He suggests, okay, that the reason that he spit on him and put his hands on his eyes was just so that we could see that once the gummed eyelids were open, that the man could not see. So this is what this commentator, this particular commentator suggests. And regardless, it brings us to our second point, and this is the Second eye-opening application that we're going to take out today. And it's a, and then I've written it like this. It says, true healing is only possible through Jesus Christ. However it happened, true healing is only possible with Jesus. So, if it is just 
him spitting on the man just to reveal that the man can't see once his eyelids are, are open. Well, now we see that he's blind. Now Jesus finally touches him, and he looks up, and the healing comes. The true healing comes, and now he's finally able to see. True healing in this life can only happen in and through Jesus Christ. Sometimes it might take a second touch. Sometimes it might take a third touch. Sometimes it might take a tenth touch. But make no mistake, you can receive relief in this life without receiving healing, true healing. Ask the Pharaoh of Egypt. Every time the plague stopped because he begged Moses, oh, go to your God on my behalf, go to God. He got relief, but he didn't get healing. Do you understand the difference? He got relief from a situation. That's what so many of us want. We want relief from the turmoil, from the finances. And if I just go to church, and if I just do this, and if I just pray, and if I just do all the right things, then all of my situations are going to get solved. But that still won't bring you healing. Healing comes from the heart of Christ and aligning your heart with his, repenting of your sins, becoming his child. Becoming his child. That is where the true healing begins. Because it only says that he's healed. It says in verse 25, he says, Then he put his hands on his eyes again and made him look up. And that's when everything was restored, when he looked up, when he was in more of a posture of prayer. When he finally looked up, when Jesus touched him again and now looked up, that's where the healing comes and that's where the true healing begins. Listen, somebody can drink for 20, 30 years. They can damage their liver. Right? Now, this person can come and get true healing from Jesus. This person can repent of their sins, be made new. It doesn't necessarily mean that every physical ailment is going to disappear. That was a consequence of what they did. It can, and he does that, but it doesn't mean that that's going to happen like that. But it doesn't matter, because the most important healing that we have is knowing this, is that ultimately we're going to take our last breaths in this life, and we're going to stand before God, and that's what the real healing is about. Listen, you can put a broken relationship together after 20 years. A marriage can last 50 years. An alcoholic can recover and not find Jesus. Every one of us will stand before God. And the true healing that can occur, and the true healing that is necessary, is only at the hands of Jesus. Only at the hands of Jesus. You can ask my father. Fourth stage lung cancer. Sloan Kettering says, go home, kiss your family goodbye. 18 years ago. Maybe longer. See, he had a procedure that took out part of his right lobe of his lung. And they believed that he was free for two years. And then they did a scan and they were like, oh, Mr. Panico, you've got it back in both lungs. Sorry about that. We missed it. What can you do? There's nothing. Now listen, at the same time, because of his cancer, the way that God orchestrated it is I was volunteering at that same hospital. There was a man that was retired on Wall Street. He was volunteering with me with children. And he said, Johnny, I heard about your dad. We were good friends. I heard about your dad. And uh, we're bringing this special procedure over. I'm helping fund it from Germany. 
and they're going to do it at the University of Rochester. It's not FDA approved. Do you want to give it a shot? So the family broke open the piggy bank. And we believe that this is what God used to heal my dad. But ask him who healed him. Ask him who healed him. Because the supernatural isn't just a matter of somebody being healed and touched. Sometimes it's a matter of the supernatural circumstances that God orchestrates when you say, only God could have done that. Only God could have put you in this place at this time to experience that. True healing only happens at the hand of Jesus Christ. And I've seen other things happen working in the hospital as a nursing assistant. A lady there that was on all sorts of tubes and probably in her late 90s and Family is doing everything that they can to keep her alive, but she's only alive because of the machines. And the family, I remember them telling me she's a devout Christian, and they had taped on her forehead this verse, By his stripes we are healed. Listen again. By his stripes we are indeed healed. But it doesn't necessarily mean that everybody's going to receive physical healing. What it does mean is this. Is that while we're assured this, that until Jesus comes back, every one of us will one day, unless Jesus comes back, take our last breath on this planet. It means that that's where the true healing, the true relief, the true release begins. That's it. That's the reason why we saw back a few chapters ago, back in Mark 2, Again, while Jesus said, listen, your sins are forgiven. That's the first thing he does. That's his priority. Not telling the man to get up and walk. That's not his first priority. The first priority is saying your sins are forgiven. It's the most important aspect of the healing. So that's two things that we see right off the bat. One is that God is not limited by the things that we can see. The second thing is that true healing only comes through Jesus but here's the third of four eye-opening applications. And that is in verse 24, as it says here, that he looked up and said, I see men like trees walking. So he opens up, and that's the reason for the blurriness of this. No, there's not anything wrong with your eyes. Okay, that, this is intentionally blurry. See what we did there? Okay, so, so now the man's eyes are open, and he say, I see men like trees walking. So he can't see them clearly yet at this moment. This first interaction, before he's able to see the people clearly, the first interaction, the most important interaction, has to be with Jesus. And this is the third eye-opening application. It says we will only begin to see people for who they are once we see Jesus. Doesn't that make all the sense in the world? Doesn't it make all the sense of the world? We're only going to be able to see people for who they are once we see Jesus clearly. He's the first one we have to see. Everything else will be muddled until we see him for who he is. If you were to ask me at 29 years old whether or not I was going to heaven, I actually took a little test. It was in this book called The Search for Significance. I took this test about how certain I was if I was going to heaven. And after I took that test, it was like 50-50. I'm like, I might make it, might not make it. All right, it was a 50-50. After I filled out this little silly survey at 29 years old, I brought it to my childhood pastor. 
I didn't understand. Many of the stories I'd been brought up with, many of the things that I'd learned in church, I didn't fully understand how God saw me because I couldn't see him. And that was the most important thing, is being able to see the king of heaven. We have to be able to see him in order to be able to look in the mirror and see who he made us to be. And only then are we going to be able to look out there and see the hurting people and see the hurting hearts once you understand how Jesus sees you. The first interaction with Jesus, all right, Jesus spits on him, he touches him, and he can kind of see, but not really. And it's kind of like our relationship with God in the church. You know, we come to church, and we, we begin to see God, we begin to understand more about God, we thus begin to understand more about ourselves, but we're still struggling with some people out there. Because people have issues, right? People have issues. I always say, hey, don't believe it. Look in the mirror. We have issues. We have issues. But listen, do you think at 29 years old when I was seeking God, I had any idea that he was going to call me to pastor? The only way I could ever see that is when I saw him, when he opened up my blind eyes, and I finally was able to see him for who he was. <clears throat> It has everything to do with the way that he sees you. And that's based on his grace. Based on his grace. It's a poem that somebody had written about what it was like for them when they began to understand how Jesus saw them. The years had left scars, and the scars had left pain. How could he recognize me, for I wasn't the same? I knew I should pay, and I knew the price, for justice and law had demanded my life. Oh, but his tender heart heard my desperate cry, and he saw all my past through merciful eyes. Beautiful, that's how mercy saw me, for I was broken and so lost. Mercy looked at all my faults. The justice of God saw what I had done, but mercy saw me through the sun. Not what I was, but what I could be. That's how mercy saw me. For sin had stolen all my dignity and all my self-esteem, but I was made brand new again when mercy looked at me. Beautiful, that's how mercy saw me, for I was broken and so lost. Mercy looked at all my thought faults. Justice of God saw what I had done, but mercy saw me through the sun. Now what I was, but what I could, not what I was, but what I could be, that's how mercy saw me. Not what I was, but what I could be, that's how mercy saw me, that's how mercy saw me. Let me ask you something, how do you see others? How do you see others? Do you see them through the merciful eyes that have been cast upon you? Oh, Pastor John, well this person doesn't deserve grace. They don't deserve grace. That's the point, gang. Grace is something that nobody deserves. It's unmerited favor. It's something we didn't deserve. But here's how it works. He touches you. You see him. Then you begin to understand who you are as we begin to look in the mirror.
And now you understand that he who is a sympathetic high priest, the way that he sees you, is something so special. Not based on anything you've done, but simply because of the fact that he loves you. Not based on your works, not based on simply because he loves you. Oh, but, but you don't understand. No, I think I do understand. What was I? I was a womanizing, son of a butcher, vulgar. All of these things. But what changed was when I realized how God saw me. Not for anything that I had done. And now what happens is this. Now I see other people differently. But that's still a process. Sometimes I still people I still see people like trees. I still see them a little bit blurry. Does that make sense? The closer I get to him, the more I understand his love and who he is, the more I'm able to open up my eyes and see the true pain behind what people are struggling with. And then at that moment, what happens is, hopefully, we become less labeling. We become less judgmental. We become less cultural because it's the, not the culture that's important. What's important is your identity established through God, how he saw you. That's what's important. You began to see yourself, rather than as an Italian-American son of a butcher, I began to see myself as a child of God. And that's what became all important. And now because of that, I ask God, God, continue to open up my eyes so I can see people for who they are. Ow, it's painful. It's painful when you take a look into someone's life, because here's what we don't have the ability to do. You nor I have the ability to just simply look at somebody on the street and, oh, they're struggling with this, and they're doing this, and they're doing that. God has that ability. And what we see in Scripture is that he's the one that looks at the human heart. So what I need to say is, Lord, give me your eyes for just one second. Give me your eyes so I can see. Can I tell you what it would be like for this father of an autistic daughter if I could have her eyes just for a minute? Just for a minute to see what she sees and to hear what she hears. Here's what God did for you. He put his Holy Spirit inside of you so that when we get out of the way, that's when we can truly see people for who they are. That's when we can see people for who they are. So he looked up and he said, I see men like trees. Then he put his hands on his eyes again and made him look up. And again, he was restored and saw everyone clearly. You want to see the heart of Christ? Look at verse 26. It says, Then he sent him away to his house, saying, Neither go into the town, nor tell anyone in the town. Let me ask you, was Christ making a production of this? No. He led the man by the hand. He led him out of town. And he said, Listen, when you go back there, you can see. But don't go don't go telling everybody. Don't go into the town or tell anyone in the town. That's so different than what the church does today. Look at what we did. Look at what we're doing. Look at this. Last application. This is the fourth eye-opening application. And that is this. It's placed in the middle of the gospel, this passage. Placed in the middle of the gospel. 
because it kind of shows us that while Jesus gives us a little bit of a picture that while there's victory in Jesus, the victory is only going to be consummated with his second coming. With his first coming, there's going to be healing, and that's going to happen, and there's going to be victory of the cross. But listen, the victory that you're experiencing now is the victory, only the victory of those that are living in a fallen world. So you can have victory in a fallen world, but there's a time coming when we'll have complete victory. And here's why this is important. It's the fourth eye-opening application. And it reads like this. While we can live in victory in a fallen world, know it. We can live in victory in a fallen world because we know that full victory awaits us. Because we know that full and true victory awaits us. That's why we can live in victory here. Because we live knowing that this is not all there is. The Bible tells us this. In Hebrews 12, too. And I do want you to turn there because I want you to see this verse. Because it dispels a lot of the false teaching that is out in the church today. And it shows us how the victory that's coming can lead us into a victorious Christian life today in a fallen world. It's Hebrews 12, too. And it says this. It says, looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Did you see that? For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. And that's what gives us power in this life today, knowing that victory is coming. Because if this life was all there is, let's face it, gang, it's not worth it, quite honestly. It can break a person, bring them to tears, keep them on their knees, keep them on their face to the point where you don't want to get out of bed in the morning, but this isn't all there is. We know there's victory because here's what you have. You can see clearly because of what's at the end of Revelation that tells you clearly he wins. And because he wins, we win. That's why we can live in victory. And that brings clarity to the confusion when I'm sitting here chained to the struggles and the heartbreak that this planet brings. I know what's coming. Because I know who brought it, and I know how much he loves us. And that's the fourth truth. We can live in victory in a fallen world because we know that true victory awaits us. We don't live in hope of it. We live in assurance of it. There's a verse that summarizes this study today. It's found in 1 Corinthians 13, 12. And it reads like this. It says, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I also am known. 1 Corinthians 13, 12. You can live in victory in a fallen world. Yes, you can have joy here that the world doesn't get. You can experience love that the rest of the world won't experience. You can have peace and we can live in these things when we press into them. When the world is pressing into us, we're pressing into the Word and the truth of God. So we're not limited by what we see. True healing cannot happen apart from Christ. We can only see people for who they are once we see Jesus. 
and we can live in victory in a fallen world knowing that true victory awaits us. They were so confused by Jesus. They couldn't see sometimes what he was doing. John 13 tells us that on the night that he was going to be betrayed, denied, abandoned, tells us that he picked up a towel and basin, took the form of the lowest servant in the house, and he washed his disciples' feet. It was so confusing to Peter. Peter sat there baffled. What is going on? What can you imagine how baffled they were when they had walked with him for three years and they saw him take his last breath on the cross? How confusing that must have been. No matter how many times he told them exactly what was coming, when they saw it, they were confused. It's easy to let the situation and the circumstance and the confusions thereof prevent us from seeing clearly. Because we see dimly. And it's only as we recognize his love for us and how he sees us that we can have true healing and see things for what they really are. There's a story from Max Ricardo Ricardo. He tells a story of Dr. Maxwell Maltz. He's a man who had been injured. Uh, he tells the story of a man who had been injured in a fire while attempting to save his parents from a burning house. He couldn't get to them. They perished, and his face was burned and disfigured. He mistakenly interpreted his pain as God's punishment. The man wouldn't let anyone see him, not even his wife. She went to Dr. Maltz, a plastic surgeon, for help. He told the woman not to worry. I can restore his face, the doctor said. The wife was unenthused. Her husband had repeatedly refused any help. She knew he would refuse it again. Then why her visit? The wife looked at the doctor and simply said, I want you to disfigure my face so I can be like him. If I can share in his pain, then maybe he will let me back into his life. Dr. Maltz was shocked. He denied her request, but was so moved by this woman's love that he went to speak with her husband. Knocking on the man's bedroom door, he called loudly, I'm a plastic surgeon, and I want you to know that I can restore your face. No response. Please come out. Again, no answer. Still speaking through the door, Dr. Maltz told the man of his wife's proposal, She wants me to disfigure her face, to make her face like yours in the hope that you will let her back into your life. That's how much she loves you. There was a brief moment of silence, and then ever so slowly the doorknob began to turn. Now, do you remember the thing that we just read in the very beginning, Isaiah 52, that talks about Jesus' appearance? It says his appearance, what they saw, was so disfigured beyond that of any man, and his form marred beyond human likeness. Do you see where we're going with this? For those that he came to save, those who had been created in the image of God, who in the fall in the garden had lost that image and because of that lost our identity, restored by the power of God and his love on the cross for us. And only when you receive that will you be able to look in the mirror and then after looking at the mirror seeing who you are to him, will you be able to look at a fallen world? touch them with the love of Jesus Christ. 